Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. I want to welcome everyone to this episode of The American Idea. Today, we're going to be talking with a special guest, a, a new friend uh, to folks here on this uh, broadcast. Listeners will be interested to meet our Ed Acorn. Ed is a person who's developed a deep interest uh, in the study of the life and career of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, he had been, for a number of years, editorial page editor uh, for the Providence Journal, a uh, very highly respected newspaper, and of course, also finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Distinguished Commentary. Uh, Ed brings that journalist's keen sense of what the real story is and the great way to articulate it to the public, to all of his books. And he really has become a prolific author. He, Prior to this book on Lincoln, he wrote another wonderful book I want to commend to all of our listeners called Every Drop of Blood, the momentous second inauguration of Abraham Lincoln. And before that, I was just telling that I read one of his wonderful books. Uh, they're really baseball books, but more than that, cultural and social history of America uh, called The Summer of Beer and Whiskey, which is about 19th century baseball. It is a terrific read. Again, let me commend it to all of our listeners. Go out and buy a copy of it. You will be delighted by the story. Ed Acorn, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today on The American Idea. Oh, Jeff, it's an honor to be here with you. Your latest book is called The Lincoln Miracle, Inside the Republican Convention That Changed History. You started, your previous book was on Lincoln's second inauguration. You've moved to how Lincoln initially won the presidency. What fascinated you about that story? Well, I think that it's kind of encompassed in the title. It's such a miracle that Lincoln was nominated president. It very nearly didn't happen. And I just wanted to go into that convention, um, really study it almost hour by hour, uh, listen to the people who were there who, who wrote memoirs or reported on it for newspapers, and really get a feel for, for what happened that week, because it was such a momentous week in American history. Uh, I believe if Lincoln had not been nominated that week, this country would not exist today. And uh, so it's a profoundly important thing that happened. And it's just, it, it's a great political story. I mean, it's, it's, but it's also about the twists and turns of history. You never know what's gonna happen. So, so when you- well, that's an interesting point, right? Because to a lot of Americans, 
it would seem to have been foreordained that Abraham Lincoln, probably our greatest president, uh, was obviously going to become president, was obviously going to be emerge as the statesman that he was, and obviously going to uh, do the great things for America that he did. Looking where, from our perspective, it seems Lincoln was inevitable. One of the things I love about your book, as you were just mentioning, is you show how contingent, in fact, not inevitable, Lincoln's nomination uh, to the presidency was. Take us back to 1860. Tell Before the convention starts, tell us about the position of Abraham Lincoln in 1860. Well, Abraham Lincoln um, had lost two runs for the U.S. Senate. He, he ran a two-man law office. That was all his executive experience, pretty much. Uh, he had not held public office in more than a decade. He went into that convention as really um, somebody who was being talked about possibly as a vice presidential nominee simply because Illinois was such an important swing state. And so he was the he was the underdog of underdogs. I mean, I start my book on May 12th, 1860, and Harper's Weekly, which was a very popular magazine at the time, had a center spread of the, the um, candidates. And they had in the center the superstar of the Republican Party, who was William Seward. And Lincoln was sort of on the corner with the also-rans. And then they, they had write-ups of the candidates. Seward had this big, long write-up at the beginning, and Lincoln was this short one at the very end. So that, that gives you a sense of where he was politically going into this convention. So it's really striking how a whole confluence of events uh, conspired to propel him to the top of the t ticket. It's it's remarkable. For our listeners, remind us, if, if William Seward is sort of the superstar of the Republican Party in May 1860, remind our listeners who was Seward and why was he so important in the Republican Party? Right. If Seward's known at all today, he's, he's probably most famous for a secretary of state many years later buying Alaska for, I think it was $7 million or something, which was a brilliant move for the United States. But Seward in 1860 was sort of the heart and soul of the Republican Party. He had he had become very famous speaking out against slavery. He supported immigrants' rights. He was very sort of liberal for his time. He, he was a U.S. senator from New York, which was then the most populous and powerful state. He had been a governor of New York. He was sort of this boy governor of New York, young governor of New York, a rising superstar. And he people credited him with really um, solidifying the Republican Party and making it a major party in America. So he went into this convention. I mean, uh, many people thought this was his convention. It's finally his turn to, to take the reins and, and lead this country. And uh, it didn't happen that way. Well, how does Abraham Lincoln by 1860 even get in Harper's Weekly? How is he even uh, in contention at all, even if just as an also ran? Well, he he had he had gotten some national press with his 1858 campaign against Stephen Douglas, who was the most prominent Democrat. He was senator from Illinois. 
uh, little guy. They called him the, uh, the the little giant, and he he um, very influential. He was considered the front runner for the Democratic nomination in 1860, and Lincoln had managed to sort of maneuver him into having these debates with him, and they. They became these famous debates published around the country in newspapers, excerpts of them anyways. And Lincoln astonished everyone with sort of the, the ability of his arguments, the, the moral clarity, the way he maneuvered uh, Douglas. And, and he very nearly toppled this very great uh, famous senator from Illinois. And so he, he was known in Republican circles as, as you know, a, a, a tough debater and an interesting guy, but people were not projecting him for the presidency generally in 1860. But he did have a very loyal cadre of supporters from Illinois. You know, one of the reasons, I, I mentioned this in the book, one of the reasons they chose um, Chicago as the site of the convention because the Republican National Committee thought no serious candidate came from Illinois, which is amazing. Uh -huh. They didn't want home court advantage. <laughs> yeah, they didn't want anybody to have home court advantage. And of course they gave it to Lincoln. And he had something that the, the national press was not really aware of, which was a cadre of really loyal support from, from Illinois because he had spent years uh, out on this judicial circuit, traveling from town to town, six months a year and uh meeting everybody and impressing them with his storytelling and his sense of fairness and his intelligence and they all flocked up to chicago and helped him out that week and that that was really important because he had very little money to spend on uh mounting a campaign in contrast to seward who who was uh had enormous amounts of money. He was backed by the greatest political manager in the country, this man named Thurlow Weed from New York. And Weed had imported thousands of Seward supporters to Chicago to sort of create this sense of irresistible momentum behind Seward. So, so this is so interesting how, um, you know, the Lincoln people counteracted all this power and money. So take us then to the convention itself. Lincoln, as you say, comes in as as a clear underdog, maybe a contender for the vice president. How, when the convention starts, um, how does Lincoln begin to turn this around? Take us through the convention. Yeah, well, the, the Lincoln people quickly discover, well, they discover a couple things. One is they are totally disorganized. When they get to Chicago, when David Davis, who was a, a judge on this judicial circuit I mentioned, got to Chicago, Link, big Lincoln man. He discovered they had not even thought of booking a campaign headquarters, which would have finished them right off the bat. <laughs> so he managed to, to bribe some people at the Tremont House Hotel, which was the big political hotel, to move out. And he set up his headquarters there, and he just made himself manager of the Lincoln effort. He's nobody's doing this, so I'll take it over. And he uh, he didn't sleep the rest of the week. So, so <laughs> he started there. And, and one of the things they very quickly realized was that, you know, Seward was strong, but a lot of his strength was uh, was sort of illusory. He he was considered by many of these political professionals in, in Chicago as somebody who was 
too controversial and they were worried about losing swing voters you know the first thing first thing you really discover researching this or i did was these people were not gathering to choose the best president to lead the country in a terrible crisis they only wanted to pick a a um, standard bearer who would elect the most republicans possible so they they people in america were getting a little bit concerned about how strongly worded seward's attacks on slavery were uh a few months before this five months before this convention this radical six months uh, i don't know the exact number but let's say half a year before this convention a radical abolitionist named john brown had gone to harper's ferry virginia where there was an armory and he he had tried to seize weapons and arm slaves uh with weapons for a violent uprising and this terrified whites in the south and it made people in the north think wow all this talk about slavery is putting an impossible strain on our political system we're in danger of careening into a bloody civil war if we don't watch it so they were kind of wary of nominating seward because voters wanted to tamp down some of this talk about slavery now the irony is lincoln had said just as strong and powerful and moral things against slavery as seward but he was less well-known so he wasn't as risky at the top of the ticket and it was similar Seward had um Seward was a very strong proponent of immigrants and immigration he befriended the Catholic Church at a time when this was sort of anathema in the Republican Party and uh because the, the Catholic Church was very closely aligned with the Democratic Party and uh so they were kind of worried about seward at the top of the ticket it would uh, turn off too many republicans um and they didn't know lincoln had as strong sentiments in favor of immigrants as seward but once again he was less risky so these were the kind of things playing into the background of uh what was going on um so how does lincoln then given if seward if if the political pros smell that as you say that seward's power is a little bit illusory it's a little bit weaker and shakier than it might seem from the outside how do the Lincoln people start to chip away at that as the convention goes on well Lincoln had uh sent them in with a very simple and brilliant strategy I think which was don't offend don't offend anybody don't put uh -huh. down any candidate just say uh make the case if you can't have your first love um you might want to turn to us because we bring some strengths to this to this thing um and they very carefully and cautiously did this the the chief moderate alternative to seward going into the convention was this guy edward bates who was a judge from missouri and he was very conservative he he almost wasn't even a republican he was kind of this old-fashioned whig and he despised all the slavery agitation so uh people thought well he he's somebody if we nominate him he won't offend the south and they won't secede they won't carry out their threats to secede so he might be a really good candidate and somebody uh as famous as Horace Greeley who was the greatest and most influential newspaper editor in America at the time 
Greeley was behind Bates. So he came to Chicago pushing for Bates. So, you know, initially it looked like Bates would be this alternative to Seward and bring all the moderates in. But uh, Bates had flirted with with the so-called know-nothing party, which was anti-immigrant. Oh, yes. And German-American voters uh, were a very small percentage of Republican voters, but they were enough to sway elections in the North. They were dead set against Bates. And I write about this in the book. They even went so far as to have their own national convention that same week in Chicago, right down the road from the Republicans, basically to send a message uh, if you if you uh, nominate Bates, we're going to bolt from the party. And of course, this terrified all the professional politicians gathered in Chicago. So all these things sort of played into, into Lincoln perfectly. I mean, Lincoln was friendly with German Americans. He made a point of befriending them and supporting them. And uh, so he was perfectly poised to sort of rise to the top as uh seward's chief chief uh, opponent but but even late into the uh convention uh didn't appear anybody would be strong enough to uh defeat seward can you say a little bit more about the factions in the republican party at the time because i think some of our listeners well we have very you know historically informed listeners who know that the republican party was not really an abolitionist party exactly. Uh, its major platform was probably the prohibition of expansion of slavery into the Western territories. That seemed like one thing all Republicans could agree on. But what about inside the party itself? What are the various factions, in particularly as in regards to slavery? Well, it was a it was a complete hodgepodge. Actually, it was basically uh, if you're opposed to Democrats go to this party i mean that was that was what it really and the democrats had become um people had become very sick of the democrats because of their they they placated the slave states to the nth degree um people in the north started to get fed up with this there was a lot of corruption uh political corruption in washington under the democrats and uh, people in the North really started to, to turn against the Democrats. Now, the Republican Party was just like, a, 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 as I say, an amalgam of people who were opposed to the Democrats. So it included very strong anti-slavery people and included people who wanted uh, a tariff in the North to protect um, a tariff to protect uh industries in the north and included people who wanted you know homesteading in the in the west uh, and included people who wanted a transcontinental railroad it was a real mixture and in fact two two of the major states uh new jersey and pennsylvania could not even field uh delegates uh, that they called republicans they in in uh, Pennsylvania, they were the People's Party, but they still went to the Republican convention. So this this shows you how, how splintered this party was. So they were desperate to coalesce against somebody who could pull as many of these strands together as possible. Before we continue with our conversation, I think it's important to take a moment and tell you about our undergraduate honors program in the liberal arts here at Ashland University. Hi, I'm Rich Police, Associate Director of Student Programs at the Ashbrook Center. 
The Ashbrook Scholar Program is an honors program located at Ashland University for undergraduate students with an interest in politics, history, and economics. Modeled after a classical liberal education, you will read the great texts, not textbooks. Your classes will be conversations, not lectures. Conversations with other students, with your professors, and with great thinkers and statesmen from throughout human history. If you or a young person you know are passionate about life's important questions, if you want an education that emphasizes discovery, if you value liberal education and the principles of freedom it upholds, then this is the place for you. To learn more, visit us online at ashbrookscholar.org. So how did Lincoln and his people at the convention try to work those different groups and factions? They they consistently made the case if you can't have you know the best guy you want to to appeal to this this or that faction, we're the best second choice you know so they and and they had a great story to tell I mean this here was a man who was born in a log cabin he was uh, dirt poor and he he worked his way up uh, through through his own effort into becoming a very successful lawyer and. And if he was the presidential nominee, he, that would be a great story of American story of how you can rise in this country. And that really appealed to people in the North at the time. It was becoming a very democratic society in the North, not not so in the South, but uh, in the North, people really love those kind of stories. And Lincoln had already been branded the rail splitter. Some of his friends at at the state convention a week before the Chicago convention had planted that name on him. It was a brilliant stroke of public relations uh, because this was America. This guy worked with his hands and he's one of us. He's not just one of these elites in Washington who's trying to rip us off. And and, uh, so that was very powerful in their messaging for him. Um, But as I write in the book, even uh, what the, the convention started on a Wednesday, people thought it would go very quickly. On Thursday, Seward won a whole bunch of test votes. So it looked very much like Seward was going to be the nominee. On Thursday evening, they were ready to start the nominations for president. And if they had done that, Seward would have been nominated. I think he there was no other alternative to Seward who had risen to the level where people were swarming around him. So they were ready to start the nominations and the rostrum announced, oh, we don't have the tally sheets yet. That'll be five minutes to get them up up here. Uh, Are you willing to wait? And people were hungry and they decided to adjourn for the evening rather than start, (laughs) start the voting for president. So, you know, because tally sheets weren't there, I think we, we didn't get Seward as the nominee. Wow. And think of the profound implications of that. Because instantly the, the Lincoln men went to work that night, sort of cutting very uh interesting deals with other states to to get their votes and to emerge as he's he's the alternative to Seward. And what I write about this sort of I was just going to say that's fascinating. What kind of deals did the Lincoln men make? Oh, they had to pull. See, Lincoln only had Illinois, so they had to pull some major states behind them. 
the first deals they seem to make with uh, Indiana, which where Lincoln had lived for a long time and where he was popular. Uh, but they had come to the convention, some of Lincoln's people later wrote, uh, sort of putting their votes on display for sale, you know, saying, what can you give us in return for our votes? And the Lincoln people promised them a cabinet position. Uh, they wanted to take, in, the Indiana people wanted to take over the Interior Department, which was a very lucrative operation in those days. So, so the Lincoln people promised a uh, a cabinet seat to an Illinois Indiana man, and they promised a, something in the Indian uh, department and so forth. And uh, it was just sort of raw politics, uh, log rolling, really. I mean, and this and Lincoln that night, uh, Lincoln had sent a message up to his people in Chicago: make no uh agreements in my name make no deals in my name and they were all like panic stricken because what can we do if we can't make deals this is ridiculous and and davis said well lincoln ain't here and he put the, he put, put the <laughs> note away <laughs> he said lincoln don't know what we have to deal with here and uh so he'll just have to ratify it later and they went to work making deals the other big deal they made was was with the pennsylvania delegation which was a huge delegation um and it was behind this guy named simon cameron who was a uh a senator but he was also uh considered this very sort of corrupt politician um so anyways that was uh that was one of the big deals they made and apparently they promised him the treasury department which would have been a, a total scandal but <laughs> the, lincoln, the lincoln in charge of the hen house <laughs> lincoln eventually gave it to uh sam and chase who was uh, a very strong and intelligent person uh but uh they made these deals overnight and and so I, I write in the book davis coming down the stairs and somebody says what what happened and he says something uh damn it we got him or something like that i mean it's it it's so they were as surprised as anyone <laughs> uh and what happened and they weren't even sure when the the voting started on friday um whether uh uh that's the Pennsylvania people would keep their promise and vote for Lincoln. So it's it's very dramatic when they describe the voting on Friday. And when when you're right on the ground, my approach to history is my writer calls micro history. What I try to do is is just look at a very brief period of time and and really dig into it and make you feel like you're there. And uh, so you get a real sense of being wrapped up in this, and you sort of lose that that you know subconscious sense you have that you know what's going to happen. It's very strange when you look at history in this narrow way, and I really enjoy that. The other thing they did they did other tricks overnight. If you want to hear about those, I'm, yeah, well, I'm, give us give us one that really stands. <laughs> another one that really stands out to you, because well, I'll tell you this: our listeners and and more broadly Americans. They think of Lincoln the statesman. They don't think of Lincoln and his people as political maneuverers. Oh, they they had to. I mean, they had to. This was the way the game was played back then. And, and Seward's people were just as uh, tough trying to, to make deals. But overnight, one of the things uh, 
that happened overnight was apparently the Lincoln forces printed up counterfeit tickets to the wigwam, to the convention, and forged the names of uh, Republican officials on them. So the following morning, um, the Seward people, you know, I mentioned thousands of people came to Chicago and they would march every day in these big parades. So they marched in this great sort of victory parade on Friday morning, expecting Seward would be nominated. And they went up and down the streets of, of Chicago and they were very impressive. And they got to the to the convention hall, the wigwam, and uh, they discovered their seats had been taken, even though they had tickets because the Lincoln people had snuck in there with their forged tickets. So this made, <laughs> this made a great difference psychologically that day because the Lincoln people in the hall were just as loud as the Seward people or even louder. And that may have swayed some delegations to say, well, Lincoln's really uh, the guy. So, so it's very interesting. All these, you know, Lincoln is Lincoln was honest. Abe, he tried to be as as honest and upstanding as he could, but his people were there playing hard, hard nosed politics. So, when did the Seward people begin to realize, uh oh, the Lincoln people have mobilized? We're, we could be in trouble. Well, it was only when the voting began. I mean, they walked into that hall expecting this is it. We're going to get the nomination. And all week long, telegrams went back to Seward in Auburn, New York, where he where he lived, uh, saying, oh, this is in the bag. Don't worry about it. You know, even that morning, you know, don't don't worry about a thing. Uh, you're all set. And then the voting started and. Uh, what happened was Seward was way ahead, but Lincoln suddenly emerges as a strong second. He had, I should know the exact number, but uh, Lincoln had around 100 votes on the first ballot, which was really surprised people in the hall. And they thought, wow, Lincoln is the alternative to Seward. And then on the next two ballots, more and more people flipped over and finally on the third ballot lincoln was ahead and he was poised to win the nomination and a few more votes uh were changed and lincoln won the nomination and uh everybody was staggered by this turn of events is it true that ohio put lincoln over the top yes they, <laughs> there was uh there was a guy in Ohio who stuttered, uh, who who did put him over the top. Ohio was very splintered. They, you know, Sam and Chase was their leading contender, but but Chase didn't have the full state behind him. Unlike Lincoln, he he wasn't able to come in with with an absolute um, total vote for the state, and so the state had virtually no. Um, power at the convention it, it it was too splintered and and uh, divided and they couldn't make deals so so finally at the end uh they came around to lincoln and lincoln had uh, lincoln the lincoln people had some some of its supporters actually sitting with the ohio delegation uh lobbying them during the voting which is which is interesting yeah so so tell us what once on that Friday on the third ballot it is right that Lincoln yes. is selected as the nominee what's the reaction of the press in Chicago and then around the country 
Well, I mean, everybody was uh, really surprised, and and the press reaction was all over the place. So some of it was, uh, how can they nominate this, you know, this this rail splitter as president? <laughs> and uh, the the greatest reaction really was the Seward people. I mean, the the Seward people in the hall were just devastated. They they sort of walked away. Uh, like they were at a funeral. I mean, here they here they are at the great Republican convention, and they've gone and nominated this this rail splitter instead of the star of the party, and they were furious. I mean, they considered the elect the whole convention to be a fraud and a farce, and this is outrageous. And and the the party had to immediately move to try to bring. New York and the Seward forces back onto the team. So it was very dicey for a while. Um, some so people tell us had, a little, just a little bit about that time between the time that Lincoln is get, get surprised, surprisingly gets the nomination and what he and the party do to try and repair relations so they can go into the general election as unified and as strong as possible. Yeah, they, they immediately reached out to the Seward people and, and, and there had been talk about uh, Lincoln going up to the convention because he was only what 200 miles away he could have caught a train and gone up and addressed the convention this would be a very dramatic unprecedented thing because the candidates didn't go to the conventions in those times and and it's so funny at the um the lincoln papers of the library of congress you can see one telegram after another i think there were something like 12 of them don't come don't come don't come different really? people all saying don't don't because they were afraid if that would really you know irritate the seward forces and and also i think david davis was afraid some of these deals would come to light and blow up the whole nomination so they had to they kept lincoln away and they tried to uh put a new yorker on on the ticket they couldn't persuade um the new york forces to do that but they put a sort of somebody who was a seward supporter on the ticket as vice president hannibal hamlin and uh and they but during the campaign there was a very long effort to win over the new yorkers and lincoln uh, the most important thing lincoln did i think was meet with Thurlow Weed, who was Seward's manager in in Springfield, and those two really got along with each other because they were both very pragmatic political guys. And and Weed immediately recognized this this man knows everything about politics all, all over America. He is not some hayseed. He's uh, very sharp and very practical and they got on terrifically so that really that really helped seward remained wounded during the the um campaign he eventually went out uh campaigning but he's it was sort of almost like he was campaigning for himself rather than lincoln it was <laughs> he was just he had very little to say that, that was that nice about lincoln but he was he backed the party and so forth and lincoln begged seward to come come visit him in Springfield and Seward kept putting him off and finally Seward was speaking in um Chicago in October which is a month from the election and uh and he was gonna go through Springfield so he agreed to stop his train in Springfield 
So Lincoln had to wait on the platform for the great man and, and fight his way onto the train car and get up to Seward. And uh, Seward kind of snubbed him on that train car. He he introduced him to his group of people and then sort of sat down without talking further with him. And Lincoln was able to put all this aside and he made um, he made Seward as Secretary of State, which was the most important cabinet position. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Of course, the, the great book Team of Rivals talks yes. about Lincoln's cabinet. But um, what, what's interesting, I think, for our listeners is you're suggesting and I hadn't really thought of this before, but a lot of that cabinet is assembled in part because of the convention and the intra-party politics. Can you say a little bit more about yes. how you think the convention shaped Lincoln's cabinet? Yes. Well, Lincoln Lincoln had to, to make good on these deals that Davis had made. Um, and there's some... Uh, Correspondence back and forth with uh, Lincoln support Lincoln's men telling him, reminding him, you know, you got to do some of this stuff. And Lincoln hated this because he wanted to be free to to make the choices he he wanted to make. But Lincoln Lincoln very carefully chose uh, from people all over the the party, the breadth of the party, and people who didn't get along with each other. I mean, it really was a team of rivals. They they weren't just rivals to Lincoln. They were rivals to each other. And Lincoln had the confidence that he could keep all these people, these truculent people together. Uh, he needed that because this was a new party. It had never held um, power before. Uh, it was a minority party. I mean, people don't understand this. Lincoln had the lowest percentage uh, popular vote of any president ever elected uh, to the White House, if you, right. can, if you can imagine that. That's right. We do forget that, right? Because the Democratic yep. Party split. It was under 40 percent. And uh, so he had to to really worry about keeping this party from just splintering off right at the beginning. And uh, he did that masterfully, I I think. One of the things I love about your book, as you said, is you 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 bring us back right there on the spot. We don't know. It, it's amazing. We don't know who's going to win <laughs> in, in, into that day by day, moment by moment. And we're there with the historical the, the, the people themselves who are doing and caring and living the history. Um, and in some ways, the revel the the portrayals of the characters that are so richly done in your book, um, they're a little surprising, I think, to, to the reader, and certainly were to me. To you as the author, what most surprised you about telling this great story? Yeah, well, I mentioned it earlier. The thing that surprised me was just how sort of pragmatic and practical these delegates were and how what a low level they operated at. They just were care, cared about getting votes. That's it. That was it. And they chose this man to lead the country at its in its great crisis. They had no clue who they nominated, really. They didn't know about his mastery of English, the English language. They didn't know about his keen pragmatism. They didn't know uh, about his powers of endurance. I mean, all these things... Uh, permitted this country to survive during that war. And that's why I think nobody but Lincoln would have been able to do this. Yet they did it without any 
a real notion of them. And you almost want whether, you know, uh, whether uh, a higher being was operating behind this because yeah, it almost sounds providential as the way you put it. It does. It does seem that way. And that's how it struck uh, reporters who were covering it and looked back on it. I mean, really, this was um, it's it's such a great gripping political story. And I, as you mentioned, you know, you read it and you you know what's going to happen, but it's still incredible you don't know what's going to happen when when you look at it hour by hour i mean i was as i wrote this my i i would uh, read it out loud the chapters out loud to my wife and she was like i can't wait to hear what happens next <laughs> and that's to me that's when i knew okay i had hit it because it, it's uh it is a really dramatic story and and we don't have any sense you know, we always think, oh, this had to be this way. But when you look at it almost hour by hour, you get the sense, wow, this was incredible. And all the different forces, the different uh, strands of it playing into place perfectly. As you say, uh, uh, it, it, had the ledgers been there, <laughs> the whole course of American history <laughs> might have been That's different. That's right. That's Not right. The tally sheets. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. No, let me ask you that. So this is probably an unfair question for an author because you get to know and really uh, come to grips with so many characters in the book. But who's your favorite character in this book? Well, I mean, Lincoln always has to be my favorite character, but my yeah. favorite new character is David Davis, who was this the 300 pound judge who uh, worked with Lincoln six months a year. Um, he's just a wonderful guy. I mean, he's so uh, bold. He he just he takes control. He's funny. He's uh, he's kind of sarcastic at points. He's the one who said Lincoln ain't here. He's the one who got him nominated. And in fact, Lincoln Lincoln's uh, had an opening on the Supreme Court as president in his. Uh, he, he was wondering who to appoint. He, he wanted uh, his uh, David Davis's friends went to him and said, you have to appoint David Davis to the Supreme Court. And he said, I, I don't want to put too many Illinois people in, in positions of power. I have to distribute this around the country to keep the party together. And they, they really pressed him hard and said, you wouldn't be sitting in that seat unless David Davis had been there in Chicago. And Lincoln had to agree they were right, and he put him on the Supreme Court. So he's a great character, and it's it's funny he's buried in the same cemetery as the character, the main character in my first book, uh, Old Hoss Radborn, who was from Bloomington, Illinois, as well. So their their graves are not too far apart from each other, but they're both these wonderful figures from the nineteenth century. Wow. Well, what a fascinating story. Uh, Ed Acorn, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Let me commend to all of our listeners, go out and get Ed's book. It is terrific. The Lincoln Miracle Inside the Republican Convention That Changed History. Ed, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today on The American Idea. Oh, thank you, Jeff. It was great. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, 
Remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.